Welcome back to Political OD episode 41. It's been a while since we last uh, podcasted. Uh, hello, Owen, and I think it's still okay to say Happy New Year, though it's getting a bit strained. Yeah, I think it's just about uh, okay to say Happy New Year. It's our first podcast of a new year and uh, the first one for quite a while. So First, first one in six months, Owen. But not a lot has really happened in those six months, has it? I mean, the, we, we sort of held off going into October to wait for what would happen with the protocol and then realised that the only aspects of the Windsor Framework Protocol were being implemented were the green lanes for supermarkets and that the big rigorous implementation to come isn't going to be until 2025. And it really did then end up in a groundhog day of talks and deadlines and something never quite happening. Well, that's exactly the case. I don't think many people actually appreciate the fact that although the Windsor framework is now in place, it's only the bones of it that are in place and it will be fleshed out over the next two years. So it's going to become more troublesome and more difficult as time goes on. But yes, the talks then uh, continued in London and we just got so used to this pattern of the DUP saying that progress had been made. We don't know what that progress is, of course, or certainly what it, the extent of it is. And the government saying that they were not going to give a running commentary up until the last sort of month or so, at which point we've heard from the government that the talks are more or less at, at a conclusion. But the DUP has kept telling us that progress is still being made and talks are ongoing. But it's, it's very hard to see the EU wanting to step back on the protocol. Two things. Sunak won't want to step back on the Windsor framework because that would be a failure. He's got little enough to show for his uh, tenure as prime minister, so he won't want to see that. The EU won't really want to step back because with EU elections, with European parliamentary elections this year and the resurgent populist movements across Europe, they won't want to be seen to weaken the resolve to punish anybody who wants to leave the EU or diminish EU status. Yes, and from what I understand, the EU, while it is aware that these talks between the government and the DUP are going on, it is not a party to them. Um, so it's there's nothing being asked of it. And therefore, as far as it's concerned, the framework will be implemented in the way that it will be happy with. So it's not, uh, I mean, th that tells you really all you need to know about the prospects of these talks coming up with something meaningful that act actually delivers on the issues that we've been talking about for so long now. And of course, this podcast is coming out on Thursday the 18th of January, and the Rwanda bill will have already been voted on. Uh, if, if you want to take this in parallel to the protocol, Sunak doesn't seem to be too keen to go to the point where it's actually a meaningful act. He's, he's holding off because there are too many people who will object to it within his own party. This is an internal problem for, for Sunak. He's not prepared to make it robust enough to actually deal with the problems he's know, he knows are going to happen and are the very problems that are preventing sending off of migrants to Rwanda for processing. The media reports are that he's going to reallocate 150 judges and a whole load of public servants to actually deal with claims, which suggests that in no way are the number of appeals against being sent to Rwanda aren't going to be 
as many as as any appeal to anything within the migration system that we have, which is pretty broken. Well, that's certainly what it implies. I mean, I'm not qualified to sort of speak about the legalities of it and whether this bill is going to be effective or whether, as so many Tory rebels say, it's not going to have the required effect. But enough of them do seem to be of that opinion and they seem to be firm enough in that view that there is going to be a rebellion unless something very much changes over the next few days or unless people step back uh, from the brink of that. And there were supposed to be, as I understand it, talks between Sunak and uh, the Conservatives who are claiming that the, the, the bill isn't going to be enough and some means of sorting that out or some some discussion about sorting it out anyway. And I, I'm not aware that that's happened. Certainly from the comments that Jacob rees Mogg was making this morning, it doesn't appear to have happened. So I don't know. The assumption seems to be that if you just go blundering ahead, that something will turn up and that something, you know, people will not do what they say that they were going to do and, and it'll all be, be all right in the night, as it were. I, I do think that there's a last gasp to try and do something to to save their own seats. I think there's an awful lot of Tory MPs who will probably rebel simply so they can go back to their constituents, uh, the constituency associations and say, look, I did my best to make this tougher, but I was, I was shot down by uh, this other lot, at least vote for me, because I was tough enough on this bill. This will be... This will be either true or not true on Thursday when this this podcast goes out. Uh, I don't know which it's going to be, uh, but I do get a sense that this bill will go through pretty much as it is now. And there's a deep resignation among so many Tory MPs that their goose is cooked, that basically they might as well just give up. I don't think there is the the fight within Conservatives to really go past making the effort to rebel but not enough to basically bring the house down. It could be that my memory is playing tricks with me, David, but I'm pretty sure that we've already discussed that and our last podcast was in July and that just shows how little has changed. But the fact that there's such resignation within the Conservative Party that so many people are already starting to look past the next election and yeah. thinking about what happens then with the Conservative Party. How does it realign? How does it go about making itself relevant again and which sort of factions become central to those efforts after is assumed by many people to be a bad defeat and I know there's kind of disagreement about the scale to which that will be or whether it will be inevitable at all but um, there does seem to be that sense within the party that it's beaten already and that the election's just really a staging post in a in, in I suppose a journey to a, to a realignment in the future. It's not as if this is the only issue that's facing Sunak. I mean, he's still got strikes going on in England. Um, there's the junior doctors, the train strike. Uh, the Aslef uh, guys are out again because they had broadly accepted the deal, uh, only for the government to pull out of the hat extra money for RMT. Uh, Aslev having accepted the deal on the basis there was no more money uh, infuriated them, so they're now out to get the same deal as RMT. You know, that's mm. just cack-handed negotiation. Uh, and of course, we're facing our own strikes on the 18th of January, uh, on Thursday, which is public servants who know the money is available. Um, uh, Heaton Harris has the authority, he certainly has the power, uh, to make those pay rises happen. And yet he is refusing to do anything because the DUP won't go back to Stormont, which seems to be everybody else's fault sort of attitude of Heaton Harris, who doesn't seem to really care much either way, frankly. 
it's another piece of cat-handed negotiation, isn't it? Where you basically acknowledge that you have the money, you acknowledge the case for spending the money, um, but then you say you're not having it because we want this political outcome. And it either speaks to a really cavalier attitude to Northern Ireland simply because the Conservative Party at the moment doesn't feel that it's got much to lose here, electorally speaking. And I know that in the past it's been one of the few parties in the mainland who's that have actually attempted to contest seats uh, here. And it's also, to be fair, the only party that um, at least alludes to its unionism on a more or less kind of consistent level. But I mean, the, the attitude that that betrays really is shocking. Maybe we'll see something, maybe, you know, the, the, the podcast's coming out on Thursday, as you say, that's supposedly the deadline um, for the election. It's, we think, what uh, the parties are discussing at Hillsborough Castle this week, what happens next. Perhaps he's going to make some sort of suggestion um, in terms of the way that the, the government is going to work with the civil service for the next spell. We don't know. Um, but at the moment, his attitude is shocking, really, and that that's coming from a government that should be taking responsibility for Northern Ireland because at the end of the day, the powers that local ministers are supposed to have here are devolved from Westminster. So in the absence of devolution, it's still Westminster's responsibility to take up those powers again and make sure that there's not an absence of governance and that decisions are made. Well, I don't think Eden Harris cares because there's no consequences for him uh, because he's on a path to happy retirement. It's been a long line of sort of ineffectual ministers. And I mean, I'm not even going to say that he's the absolute worst um, because in my eyes, Julian Smith still takes that crime during this uh, government, this government spell in office anyway. I think Julian Smith, he claimed to be over the brief and he's still interfering in our, in our affairs in a way that is not entirely positive. Like he's, he's Buckland sort of school, isn't he? That element of patrician Tories that basically think they don't really have to listen to the locals and they can do whatever they want at the end of the day. Well, they know what's best and they've also seemed to have absorbed a nationalist view of what's happening here, even if they claim to be unionists, they've pretty much absorbed every kind of claim and grievance that nationalists make and decided that that has to be somehow met or pandered to in what happens here. And that's, uh, you know, Julian Smith more or less goes along with everything that the SDLP believes here. So, I mean, that's all you need to know. Yeah, but I say most of them are going to lose their, their seats. Uh, the strikes seem irresolvable without the money. Money's available, uh, but really Heaton Harris is at the centre of this. He has the power to actually provide those um, uh, the, the uptick in salaries. Uh, it's not a significant, it's not a governance issue. It's simply a decency issue in terms of what's already available uh, to maintain parity. Well, it's not even parity, but maintain uh, the uplifts that uh, workers, uh, public sector workers in um, the rest of the UK have broadly achieved. Yes, although a couple of points that I would make, David, I mean, we, we're both um, freelancers or, you know, we, we work for ourselves as yeah. it were. So we'll have little truck with the idea that the public sector workers are so badly done by. Oh, because, no, no. Um, you know, but the, those of us who work for ourselves don't uh, see our salaries go up with inflation in the same way that other people perhaps uh, take or, for or pensions 
The fact is that because of the size of the public sector in Northern Ireland, a lot of people are in the on these gold-plated public pensions that simply wouldn't be available to the equivalent workers in the rest of the UK. Um, and that just seems to be a tremendously undervalued aspect of the package that they receive. Because if you're on, it's not so much a final salary pa- uh, pension anymore, but a, a pension that's linked to your salary throughout your uh, career, as opposed to the investments that are made with your pension, it, yeah. it tends to be a much better, more comfortable outcome and the employer's contributions are much, much higher. So that is a tremendously undervalued aspect of public sector remuneration here that isn't really mentioned, certainly in the discussion about strikes and their merits. No, and whilst private sector productivity has been rising uh, over the past decades, uh, public sector productivity in the UK has flatlined, um, yeah. given the scale of sickness within the public sector in Northern Ireland, uh, I think that would be flatlining and, and uh, uh, possibly on life support. Yeah, and I mean, I think that we would acknowledge that there are some tremendously worthwhile jobs in the public sector. Absolutely, there are, and that people haven't had wage increases in line with what people in the, re- in the rest of the country. Yeah. But at the same time, we have so much waste and replication in the public sector in Northern Ireland, and it's so over large. That, which goes back, which goes back to our politicians not bringing in the necessary reforms to improve efficiencies, uh, to improve service levels and outcomes within the public sector. Absolutely, absolutely. We sort of imagine that politicians get elected because they're going to change things; they're going to be different. There are a lot of elections in the coming year, uh, and it's worth maybe touching on those. We've just seen the Taiwanese one. Um, where although the president, the electorate's two fingers to China, his actual uh, parliamentary party lost their overall majority. So that was a sort of a mixed message there. Um, but well done, Taiwan, for being prepared to to stand up as as people uh, to Chinese bully boy tactics uh, in, in, in that respect. The other big, uh, I mean, there, there are elections in Malaysia and that as well, I think in Indonesia, uh, India, not going to talk a lot you've, about those. I know very, very off my uh, area of expertise. In yeah, no, I think I think we'll leave those to one side. Uh, Trump seems to be back and in the ascendancy in North America, um, winning the Iowan caucuses last night, and it does look as if it's going to be a Trump Biden election again this year. Yeah, it's an extraordinary comeback, really, by Trump, um, given that scene that he that he would ever be able to come back into office and there were also that there also been legal campaigns against him and everything else it's just a very uninspiring time to be a US voter I would have thought because um I don't think either of those options are people who would you know inspire me with a well, Trump's a, a late a late septuagenarian who who basically is vague on policy. Although his record in office, you know, one of the the, the reasons uh, voters are migrating to him or Republicans like him is because a lot of Americans feel that they they were better off under Trump economically than they are now under Biden. I don't. I I'm not going to talk as to whether that's fair or not, but it's a public perception. And of course, Biden is an octogenarian um, who just doesn't look as if he he knows the time of day or or the day of the week. Come to that. So it's it's going to be a really odd election in that respect i suppose the real 
battles are going to be for Congress and Senate, where parties are probably lining up for that post-Trump, post-Biden battle for ideas and what sort of parties they're going to be after the Trump-Biden era, because this is the last gap of the 60s generation, isn't it, or the, 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 the post-war boomers? Well, it's okay, as you're kind of intimating, making your choice for the next um, number of years, and then where do, where do you go from there? Because it seems unlikely that either of these men will be shaping politics beyond Yes, it, it is. It's it's what comes next. And I suppose that's as much for the Republican Party as the Democrats, because the Democrats have changed from, well, they, they, they were never as, as much of a sort of left-wing workers type of party, a party for the working class, as were uh, the Labour Party in, in Britain. Um, but at the same time, this kind of cultural liberalism, wokeism, the kind of um, race-baiting type politics that have crept into the Democratic Party weren't so much of a factor. There's kind of a, a struggle for the Republican soul as well. Uh, does it go down a populist route? Does it go down a kind of uh, economically liberal route? Or does it find some some somewhere in the middle where it appeals to people's patriotism in a conservative way, but also champions the sort of freedoms and opportunities delivered by free markets. And I, th- I think we've seen those changes in those parties previously, um, perhaps slower, perhaps it's the pace of change that um, we're, we're, we're astounded by or, or, or puzzled by at the present time. But people seem to forget that Kennedy was president of a party that was representing Teamsters and unions in the in the Rust Belt. And oh, at yes. the same time, the segregationists of the South. This was this was a very different Democrat Party to the one there is now, just as much as the Republican Party was once the big party of business, but Reagan economics kind of turned that into a party, a party more of the middle class and working class people or working uh, people. Well, it'll be fascinating to see how both the election pans out, because apart from the fact that... Um, become such a massive spectator sport for people on this side of the Atlantic you're interested in politics uh, to observe it's then going to set the tone for the next four years and what exactly happens in uh, such a such an influential country it's uh, going to set the tone really for for the rest of the West in, in a way because uh, these things do filter through that's that's an odd thing though isn't it because our fascination with American politics and who runs America is not matched by the by any fascination of what's happening in Europe. And yet European politics are themselves in a period of considerable upheaval. We've seen that uh, in the Netherlands, where, uh, of course, there was the farmer protests. And now we've got and builders being the, the dominant uh, leader there, uh, who would have once been uh, regarded as being extreme, uh, but is now very much mainstream. Um, you've got the Danish socialists being probably tougher than Rishi Sunak on immigration and integration policies in Denmark. Uh, Germany seems to be falling apart. I mean, they've you know, they've got strikes in their health service. They've got the farmers on the streets, not just Berlin, which is where everybody obviously focuses, but right across. Bavaria is not an area that is a healthy ground for 
the alternative for Germany, the AFD party. Uh, and yet it has the former protests every bit as much. As I think I mentioned just briefly earlier, there are populist parties right across Europe who will take a significant number of seats in the European Parliament. There is a change going on in European politics that we simply don't pay a great deal of attention to. And yet it's still the closest neighbour we have, still a substantial trading partner. Yeah, isn't, and isn't it a ripe irony that um, the people who feel themselves so intertwined with the EU that they've become, that's become something that's almost central to their identity. They're equally ignorant about what's happening to the point that they don't really grasp the ripe irony that Britain looks positively centrist or almost like it's tacking to the left at the mm -hmm. same time as most of Europe um, is looking increasingly populist. And these populist mo uh, movements have... Um, had such strong showings across the continent, or tacking or, to the right, or or tacking to the right. Yeah, yeah, uh, in, indeed. Um, so it it it's not something that just goes along with a kind of Atlanticist stuff the European Union kind of attitude uh, by any means. It's it's a it's a general failure to really be observant about what's happening in the EU and to understand those tides or currents of political thought that are that are swirling around there and the fact is that so many people seem to think that it's a mark of political barbarity or something to even take immigration under your notice in britain but this is a topic that's changing the political landscape across europe quite simply because Immigration is changing our societies right across the continent in ways that we've just struggled to either think about or to understand. We're seeing outcomes of that that that, that people may not that people may not like, but they have to start to tackle and try and get a grasp on. We come back now to to the UK and the general election that will happen sometime in the coming year. Obviously, immigration is a, an issue there that. Um, is current. It, it's one of the top three issues that the public are concerned about in various polls. Difficult to see how it's really going to make a big impact in the election itself. I, I don't see it being one of the central arguments. Well, it, it's kind of, it. it's a totem more than a policy issue in a way, because Although the Conservative Party are trying to make it a central plank of their campaign and, and Rishi Sunak is going to claim to have um, done something about that. And we'll see how the, the bill um, pans out um, in House of Commons this week. I don't think really there's a sense that the Conservative Party has either got to grasps with this properly or has a plan to do so in a way that will be effective. In fact, the plans that it is is making. I mean, whether they're 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 more a distraction than anything else is, you know, a, a point of view, and it's one that I have quite a lot of time for. But it's not like Keir Starmer is going to persuade people that he has a better plan or that he has a more coherent idea of how to deal with things either. Yet at the same time, he's not going to be prepared to come out, um, be, particularly because he's contesting seats in the north of England where this has seemed to be a massive issue and do down people's concerns or say that this isn't something that is a real issue across the country. So 
between the, the two parties that have a realistic chance of forming our next government, it is more of a totem or a symbol than it is an actual issue that they are going to be inclined or able to deal with, as, as far as I can see, certainly from what the, the, the things that they're putting forward at the moment. And the issue for the parties is the belief that neither party may well have any solution at all is probably reflected in people's indifference to the two party leaders. I don't think either Sunak or Starmer cut a figure. Mm. It's really got a personality that can put themselves on top of an issue and deal with it. Well, it seems like the theme of this election is essentially going to be just a country that wants a change. And the fact is that the Conservative Party had been in power and they're probably going to, you know, twist rather than stick. But it's not because of any real enthusiasm for what the opposition has to offer. And the sense over the past few years that there was a kind of real meaningful cleavage in British politics and that things were both ideological and different has pretty much evaporated since Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer became the leaders of their respective parties. That's also a factor in me being unable to see how Richard Tice, how the Reform Party cuts through. Because similarly, Richard uh, Richard Tice does not, we're almost calling him Richard Madeley, Richard. <laughs> well, there is a similarity there. There, isn't there is, yeah. Tice just doesn't have that cut through either, does he? He just doesn't have that man with a plan idea. You, know, It's all right being I'm not Starmer or Sunak, but you look at him and think, yeah, but what are you? You know, what 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 do you represent? And and it, the reform hasn't really managed to put themselves as a serious political movement, other than not being the other blokes, which in this election is going to be very important. But apart from taking votes from Labour, votes for the more probably votes from the Conservatives, they're not really going to be at a cut through moment. Well, I mean, setting aside the Lib Dems entirely, there's yeah. seen in the past that there's been this sort of space for a party to almost act as a kind of insurgent force in UK politics and to gain a measure of success or certainly a measure of attention by doing that. And UKIP have done that. And then the Brexit party famously topped the poll in the last European election. But exactly what reforms pitch to voters is other than just not being one of the others. I mean, I think that they'll probably play the anti-woke thing. They'll give their view on immigration and, and sort of say that the other two parties aren't particularly effectively managing it or whatever. Um, but that doesn't amount to a prospectus, certainly for government. And that's not even a particularly clear message. Even the name of the party is a wee, wee bit confusing. I think Tom McTagan is on her article pointed out that it could be equally left-wing or um right wing. So it, it's, it seems to me that they will benefit to an extent just from the fact that there's so little enthusiasm for the two other parties and the Lib Dems are thrashing about there, tainted by the post office scandal, uh, Ed Davy is in trouble. Reform are there and probably will make some progress, but I just don't see that they're going to be the kind of earth shattering third force that uh, that, that could 
potentially be a factor in the in the election. Whilst Labour are very likely to be the winners of any general election, I I I don't see that that um, polling gap being closed significantly enough to to make any difference to to that. I think there'll be a massive shrug by the electorate once the results come in. Um, I'm not sure. It's not the Blair era, is it? It's not when Tony Blair arrived where it was defining a moment in in our life in the country of yeah. regeneration and a new Britannia, cool Britannia. You know, some, someone who is comfortable with themselves and with the world. Uh, that's not going to be Keir Starmer in, in 2024. Well, that's right. And it's easy to be wise in retrospect. And now New, new Labour seems like such a tainted project but at the time it was seen as a generational shift and perhaps that was unfair because looking back on it John Major wasn't an old man by any means at that point but it was seen as a a switch between um, an old kind of fusty conservative party and a new up-and-coming Labour Party that was connected with all that kind of cultural change that was happening in the 1990s and part of that was a chimera really it wasn't anything that was uh real it was more of an image but at the same time it captured the public's imagination in a way that i just don't see happening this time around i think it's going to be more an election of cynicism and more of the same and more important for blair he had that first term which was very successful that allowed him to take on a second um and and and, and carry on uh, I mean, that is, again, I just don't get the sense that Starmer's going to manage that in a meaningful way. It would be very surprising um, if he did, and it would only be down to really the Conservative Party failing to organise itself in such a way as to rise up and, and, and make another challenge again. It's going to be a fascinating year ahead. Uh, I think we'll try and try and podcast a wee bit more often. <laughs> Uh, pick up on some of the themes maybe uh, after Super Tuesday maybe March time we'll catch up later and see how how politics is uh, developing across the world I think in 2024 yes indeed David all right then take care thanks you too